Okay, guys, um, this is week three, fractures and um, soft tissue injuries. Okay, so soft tissue injuries um, include sprains, strains, dislocations, and subluxations. Um, the most common cause for any of these soft tissue injuries is trauma. Looking into sprains, that is an injury to the ligaments around you, a joint, it usually occurs with either wrenching or twisting motion. Therefore, most common sites would be ankles, wrists, knees. Any of those that um, with any twisting motion can cause that um, injury to the ligament. It's divided up into three different degrees. So first degree um, is a mild sprain. Um, there may be some mild tenderness, maybe some swelling, um, but usually the patient is not um, very um, immobilized by the injury. Second degree is it's your moderate sprain. There's a partial disruption um, in the tissues that are involved. You may see more swelling, more tenderness, maybe some bruising. And then you have your third degree, which is a severe sprain. Um, in this type of injury, there is a complete tear of the ligaments. Um, there's going to be moderate to severe swelling. There's going to be a lot of ecchymosis. Um, the patient is going to have a lot of difficulty um, bearing weight or um, with a regular range of motion for this type of injury. Now, strains um, is... Um, excessive stretching of the muscle of the fascial sheath. There's often a tendon that's involved. It usually does affect the large muscle groups, for instance, the lower backs, the calves, the hamstrings, the deltoids. Um, and again, also divided up into three different degrees. You have your first degree, which is mild, maybe a slight pulled muscle. There may be some limited range of motion, um, some tenderness. Um, then you have your second degree, which is moderate um, or moderately torn muscle. So there is a mild tear involved in this. Um, there is obviously going to be more limited range of motion. There's going to be more pain. Um, and then you have your third degree where you have a severely torn or possibly even a ruptured muscle. So you, with this type of injury, you may even feel or visually be able to see um, the defect on the muscle through the skin. There may be a lot of ecchymosis. Um, patients will have um, limited or maybe no range of motion to that injured muscle group. Um, there will be pain, edema, um, and obviously some bruising. Okay, with soft tissue injuries, your mild ones, either sprain or strains, are usually self-limiting. You may need some, possibly some NSAIDs, some rest, some ice, some compression, um, but it, you should have no long-term um, sequela. A full function um, should be regained within three to six weeks after an injury. Now, with severe sprains, because of that um, twisting and uh, pulling of the ligaments, there may be also an avulsion fraction that occurs with it because literally that ligament pulls an entire fragment of the bone, which in turn, because there's no ligament holding on as it should, the joint in itself will become unstable and possibly cause either a subluxation or a dislocation of the joint. Um, because also the injury, there may be some blood that has um, seeped into the joint itself. That's called hemoarthrosis. Um, usually these avulsion fractures do require surgical repair in order to reattach um, the ligaments where they belong and stabilize that joint.
um, the reason um, we educate patients on stretching, warming up, and doing strengthening exercises to hopefully prevent um, these pulling um, injuries from occurring. Hey, during that acute phase, so the acute phase of the injury is those first 24 to 48 hours after the initial injury, um, we are going to limit or mobilize the injured area, and then we're going to follow the acronym RICE, which is rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Um, as far as the ice is concerned, first 24 to 48 hours is when we are going to be applying ice for about 20 to 30 minutes at a time, never directly on the skin to prevent any um, injury or second degree burn from the ice packs. And then after those initial um, 48 hours, then um, we would switch from ice to um, maybe some warm, moist heat. Again, same thing, 20 to 30 minutes, never directly on the skin to prevent any possible burn. When you're applying compression, if you do an ACE wrap, um, we're always going to wrap from distal to proximal. So away from the body first, towards the center of the body. Um, and this is to prevent the edema from forming. Because the more edema that forms, the more pain the patient will have. That's why we're also encouraging elevation. Um, injured area should be above the level of the heart, especially for those first 24 to 48. 48 hours in order to prevent that edema from forming because again more edema equals more pain um patients may need some form of analgesia usually some mild analgesic or maybe some NSAIDs um if the patient's allergic to NSAIDs then we would stick with um acetaminophen which is Tylenol um in order to help relieve some of that pain um we're going to encourage movement to maintain the nutrition of the cartilage and prevent contractures and improve circulation. Again, after the initial 24 to 48 hours from the initial injury is when we're going to start um, with range of motion exercises. Now, with dislocation and subluxations, the difference is in a dislocation, there is a complete displacement or separation of the joint. So, the pieces of the joint are no longer where um, they should be connected. It's completely out. While subluxation is a partial incomplete displacement of the joint, so the part of um, the joint itself is still intact, but there's a piece that has partially come out. So with that partial or incomplete displacement, there could be some nerve impingement, some vessel impingement um, that may um, cause some um issues. Okay. The reason for a dislocation and subluxations is usually due to either weak or some atrophied muscles that are no longer able to support that joint or in the case of maybe some strong force that occur, some accident, some fall, some sort of um, injury or trauma. The most common areas where you would have dislocation and subluxations would be in those ball and socket, um, for instance, the shoulders, um, the hips, um, but then also in any place where there may be some twisting motion, for instance, elbows, thumbs, or knees. Okay, There may be some visible deformity at different levels just depending on how much damage there is to the joint. There is going to be pain um, and there's going to be some loss of function, especially when there's some sort of impingement of nerves or vessels. Okay? Usually diagnosis um, is done via x-ray, um, but visually you can see if there is um, a deformity that would tell us that the joint is not where it needs to be. 
complications include nerve damage, some intraarticular fractures just from the amount of trauma that has occurred in the joints, and some avascular necrosis. So when the joint itself loses blood flow and supply, then the tissue is going to start to die off. Now, um, nursing care requires prompt treatment. Obviously, anytime that there's a possibility that there has been some compromised nerves or vessels, um, we are concerned with long-term um, complications as far as range of motion or use of that limb. Um, it does become an ortho-emergency, um, especially if we are unable to feel pulses or if the patient has complete loss of motion. Our goal is to maintain neurovascular integrity and provide pain management to this patient. Okay. When realigning the joints to their anatomical position, it depends on the amount of damage, the joints, um, etc. There may be some closed reduction that can be done either local um, or general anesthesia or with some sort of sedation where they are going to pop that joint back into place. Sometimes it is unable to be done at the closed reduction and it requires more intervention. And then at that point, it would be an open reduction. So surgically, they're going to open the joints, put everything back to where it needs to be. Um, they may have to provide some um, implants of some sort, like screws, plates, pins, in order to help keep the joint where it needs to be as it heals. After it's reduced, it's going to be mobilized um, and um, rehab is going to be started in order to prevent further instability or some sort of joint dysfunction that can um, be permanent. Now with fractures, the definition is a disruption or some break in the continuity of the bone. There could be different reasons why fractures occur. Most often it's due to some source some sort of trauma. However, um, there can be some pathological fractures um, secondary to certain diseases or medications, for instance, certain cancers, um, history of osteoporosis, um, chronic use of corticosteroids, which um, may lead to those stress or pathological fractures. Fractures can be open, means the skin has um, been broken, the bone has pierced through that skin and now it's exposed and now in addition to the fracture there's also an involved soft tissue injury while closed fractures um, the fracture is completely contained the skin has remained intact a complete fracture means the bone has gone that the break has gone completely through the bone whether it's perpendicular um, or at an angle um, or transverse um, but it has gone completely through the bone while incomplete um, there's a partially um, it's partially gone through the bone shaft but it has not completely broken or separated into um, two or more pieces then you have your displace, which means that the bones have not just broken, but they have separated from their normal anatomical shape. Um, these could be, for instance, like comminuted, which means that um, the bone has shattered. Um, so there is no continuity of the bone shaft in itself anymore. While non-displaced, the bone fragments, um, it's visible the fracture, but the bone fragments are still aligned where they should be. 
Okay, so um, in the next slide, you have your direction of fractures. You have um, a visual of what um, each one is. For instance, like impacted, the bones have literally crushed one piece into the other. Um, avulsion fractures is the last picture where the ligament has been pulled so hard that it has literally taken a piece of the bone that's attached to it with it. Your commonality is like bones have been um, shattered or splintered. Um, and then you have your longitudinal, which goes along um, parallel to the bone shaft. You have your transverse, which go across, the oblique, which go at an angle. And then you have those spiral fractures. Spiral fractures are not naturally occurring injury. Um, it's due to a twisting motion of the bone um if you see spiral fractures in children most often um they're usually due to some sort of child abuse or grabbing motion that caused the twisting of that bone in itself so when you're looking at a patient who has a possible fracture some signs and symptoms that you may see are bruising um there's some crepitation which is that rubbing of two bone pieces together there may be a visual deformity um, edema swelling um, the patient may have some sort of loss in function limited range of movement um, may complain of some muscle spasms and then pain and tenderness um, even without movement of that area so with the healing stages fractures heal along um, a sequence so once the fracture occurs the body sends in these platelets to form a hematoma around the area um, where the fracture occurred then come these granulation tissues in order to fill in to where it needs to be the bone forms a callus with like all these osteoblasts that you know replace that bone that is missing there's ossification and consolidation this is where the bone sets um and replaces how it originally was and then the osteo um class come in and uh, remodel that bone so it's like um when you're um, patching up a wall you have like this patch and then you come and you sand it that remodeling period it's like sanding of that bone in order to smooth it out complications with fractures um, there may be some angulation where the bone does not stay aligned there may be a delayed union that it just takes long to heal or a malunion where it just does not heal properly um, non-union where it just does not reattach to itself some pseudoarthrosis or a refracture um, delayed in healing maybe due to age so the um, more elderly patients um, may take longer to heal um, than maybe a younger, healthier um, patient. It also depends on how much displacement occurred, where exactly the fracture occurred, how much blood supply was compromised, um, if there has been any infection, the patient's nutrition, and any histories of systemic diseases such as osteoporosis, or anything like that that would um, delay or um, impair the ability of the body to heal. And then if there has been any internal fixation, that's going to take a little bit longer because now you have this foreign body um, that the body has to accept, accept in order to heal around it. So with your neck, neurovascular checks we're checking for pain, for pulse, for pallor, for paresthesia, for paralysis, um, 
and any of these, if they are abnormal, um, we need to follow up um, and figure out what's happening. When you're repairing fractures, um, there could be a closed reduction or an open reduction. So closed reduction is a non-surgical option. Um, it's manually realigned and then it is immobilized, whether with traction, casting, a brace, etc. Um, at times, um, depending on where and how much damage has occurred, there may be a need for either local or general anesthesia in order to help um, have some sort of pain control um, as the reduction is being done. As far as surgical reductions, um, these are your open. So now we are going to put these extra hardware into the joints and into the bones um, in order to assist in the healing process because um, without it, the bone is not going to be able to mend itself. Um, there may be plates, wires, pins, screws, um, etc. Um, obviously, it is a painful procedure. It needs to be done under general anesthesia. With casts, the purpose is to temporarily immobilize a joint. And in that case, we are going to go above and below the level of the fracture in order to fully immobilize the area. It's going to help prevent any further injuring and allow the body to heal um, appropriately. Um, and it restricts that tendon and ligament movement, so there's no pulling or tugging. Um, of the bones as they heal. The two main types of casts is fiberglass, which is very lightweight. It dries really fast. Um, it lasts a long time. It's able to withstand um, a little bit of um, some water exposure um, and may allow some weight bearing um, depending on what type of injury it is. While plaster casts are really no, um, not used um, anymore for fractures. Um, usually you may see them with um, patients with diabetic ulcers. Um, they are very heavy and they take a really long time to dry um, and you have to be very careful because during the drying process if at any point there's um, any area that may be indented it may cause um, some pressure points to form on the inside. The next slide, you have pictures of different types of casts. You have your long, your short, your cylinders. Um, and then on the bottom part, you have the ones that are short leg casts, cylinder, long leg casts. And then you have the ones that are applicable for, um, they're called spica casts. Regarding nursing care, we're going to be performing regular and very often neurovascular checks to make sure that the integrity um, of the tissue is intact. Removal of jewelry as soon as possible, especially, for instance, with any hand injuries, because edema will set in rather quickly, and once it's um, very swollen, the patient may be unable to remove their rings, etc., and will end up having to be cut. In order to aid with that inflammation and edema formation, we're going to elevate the cast above the level of the heart for those first 24 to 48 hours, and again, ice application 24 to 48 hours on the outside part of the cast. Um, when placing casts or OCLs, which are temporary casts, we need to make sure it's not too tight. There should be about a finger um, separation between the skin and a cast, and that's to allow um, a little bit of wiggle room for any swelling that may build up. Um, if there is an underlying injury like of the skin, a laceration, an abrasion, etc., um, we need to make sure that we're documenting um, any um, presence of drainage or if suddenly there's an increase of drainage. 
As far as um, continuing with patient education, they should not be walking on casts unless they're instructed to do so um, because that can actually cause further injury to the broken bones. Avoided placing any foreign objects, um, no pencils, nothing in there, um, no straws, no forks, um, in order to help scratch them because they could get a secondary um, injury um, that can cause some sort of infection. If there is some itching involved, which there may be due to um, the inside of the cast being sweaty and a skin shutting off as it normally does and nowhere to go, um, itching may be reported and that with a blow dryer on the cool setting um, directly on the cast can help um, with that part. If the patient needs to shower um, or anything like that, the cast should be covered in order to protect it from um, moisture or water damage. Okay, any areas that the patient starts to complain of the onset of pain, um, any warmth that could be felt on the outside of the cast, we want to make sure that we are reporting because those are signs and symptoms that there is an infection on the inside part. If the patient all of a sudden has changes in mobility, um, they no longer are able to wiggle their fingers or toes, or move distal to the extremity, then we need to report that. Any um, complaints of shortness of breath, skin breakdown, or constipation also need to be reported. With the constipation, obviously the patient's immobile or on narcotics of some sort, um, we need to make sure that they do continue to have regular bowel movements. Now on to traction. The purpose of traction is to prevent or reduce pain or muscle spasms, immobilize the joints, or that certain part of the body, mom, reduce a fracture or dislocation. It may have to be used to treat pathological joint conditions such as um, tumors, some sort of osteosarcomas or certain infections. Uh, provide immobilization to prevent soft tissue damage, promote active and passive exercise, expand the joint space um, either before arthroscopic procedures or some sort of joint or um, limb salvage. Now, with skin traction, Buck's traction um, is one of the most common ones you're going to see. It's used short-term, anywhere from 48 to 72 hours. It's usually as a temporary relief um, for preparation for surgery. Okay, it's usually 5 to 10 pounds. Um, we need to do frequent assessment of the skin and the pressure points and make sure that the foot is able to have full range of motion. Um, again, as with any traction, you need to make sure that the weights are off the floor, moving freely, um, and not swinging around. Now with skeletal traction, it is used to align injured bones and joints, um, but it can also be used for other um, reasons, such as contractures or maybe some congenital hip dysplasia that requires some sort of traction maybe prior to repair. It does require the insertion of pins or wires into the skin, so we need to monitor skin integrity around those pin sites. Um, the weight limits are usually about 5 to 45 pounds, and there is a counter um, weight. So you're going to have weight at the head of the bed, and you're going to have weights at the leg portion. Um, we're going to ensure frequent assessment of the skin, especially of those pin sites, of any pressure point the patient may have. And... Again, making sure that the weights are balanced and off the ground and able to move freely. 
Halo traction is used for cervical um, spine injuries. It does, again, also include um, pin insertion along that forehead area. So we need to monitor for skin integrity. Um, patients um, do require for the head to remain stable with movement. Um, so if you're moving the patient, um, the patient's head needs to be um, moved as a whole along with the body of the patient. Okay, care for traction, again, neurovascular checks, um, making sure that the body is properly aligned um, and um, that we are assisting in taking some of that weight off those pressure points while still maintaining the alignment. Okay, when moving a patient, make sure the weights do not swing. Um, you may require more than um, one or more people in order to help move these beds. Avoid lifting or removing the weights. The only time you're going to remove um, weights and types of patients that have traction is if there is a life or death, um, life-threatening emergency. Um, we're always going to monitor um, skin integrity and we're going to document um, how they look every time that you do the assessments and if there's any changes. We may have to use non-pharmacological treatments in order to help um, as an adjunct to pain medications as sometimes pain can be severe um, and it can hit in between doses. So we need to do those um, non-pharm interventions such as heat, massage, um, therapeutic touch, um, relaxation techniques, etc. External fixators. Um, they're putting pins, wires into the bone and attached to these outside external rods. Um, it's often used um, to salvage extremities in order to help maintain or even lengthen um, the area in between where they would either do like intermedullary rods or maybe um, a cadaver leg, etc. Um, so it's basically to maintain a space or to stretch out. Okay, wound care of those pin sites needs to be at least twice a day or more often depending on the hospital policy. And each time we're going to make sure that there's no um, erythema that's spreading, there's no drainage, um, etc. There may be some mild erythema at the pin insertion site, which is completely normal because a, the body is identifying that this does not belong there. But that erythema should not spread out. There should be no purulent drainage. The patient shouldn't be having fever, etc. Now with internal fixation, you're coming in, putting pins, plates, rods. Um, they're usually made of titanium, um, which are compatible with the majority of MRI machines. Um, and basically it's realigning and maintaining the position of those bony fragments in order for the body to have something to attach to and heal. When we're doing neurovascular checks, we're looking at peripheral vascular assessments and neurological assessments. So with color, the skin should be pink, um, the temp should be warm, um, the capillary fill should be less than three seconds, and pulses should be symmetrical. There may be some edema, but it should be um, congruent with the type of injury that occurred. As far as neurological assessments, we're gonna make sure that sensation is there, um, report if there's any numbness or tingling, um, if there's any change in motor function for the patient, or if there's pain, um, partial, or any loss of sensation that may signify um, some sort of neurovascular damage. 
For complications, you may have atrophy, contractures, foot drop, um, muscle spasms, pain, infection. And then we're going to go into more detail into compartment syndrome, fat embolism, and venous thrombosis. As far as compartment syndrome, um, um, you're going to have the swelling of the fascia that's going to increase all the pressure into those muscle compartments. So everything's going to be squished and um, pressed into itself and that um, it's what's going to cause the problem. Okay, the most common effects of compartments are usually the legs due to, um, you know, being further away from the body. Compartment syndrome usually occurs with long bone fractures or if there has been some extensive soft tissue or even crush injuries where there's so much edema and so much damage um, that the it's just filling up all those compartments. Other causes may be restrictive dressings, a splint that's on too tight or a cast, or maybe there has been um, excessive traction um, or a premature closure of the fascia. Um, again, there may be some bleeding, inflammation, edema that's just filling up into all those compartments. Signs and symptoms, your main one is going to be pain out of proportion to the injury. So your patient may have already started to have some sort of control over their pain levels. They may be um, well um, relieved with what's being offered and all of a sudden the patient just starts to complain of extreme pain that is unrelieved. Um, by what the patient was already using. Patients may complain of extreme pressure felt to that area. Um, paresthesia, there may be some numbness or tingling just to the, um, the fact that it's the nerve endings are being compressed. Pallor, you may see like a whitish color that's occurring to the distal to that extremity. There may be some coolness that comes with it. And then your late symptoms are paralysis and pulselessness. So this is, there's a complete compromise of blood flow and nerve endings, um, and it has been uh, unable to be relieved. The treatment, um, if it's suspected that the patient has compartment syndrome, we are not going to elevate above the level of the heart. Um, we do not want to apply ice. It's going to constrict the area further. Um, and the surgical decompression is called a fasciotomy where um, they're literally going to relieve um, that pressure. A, the wound's going to stay open. It's going to heal by secondary intention. So from the inside out, um, it may require some use of some negative pressure wound devices in order to assist in that healing process. But again, because the skin is wide open, um, there is an increased risk of infection. Healing um, may require some sort of skin graft to be done in order to help um, completely heal that tissue. Um, and in severe cases where compartment syndrome is unrelieved or unable to be um, reversed, um, it may require an amputation. As far as compartment syndrome nursing care, um, there needs to be frequent neurovascular checks um, and report any changes noted. So time is of the essence. Um, we need to pick up on any signs or symptoms that there may possibly be something wrong to catch it early in order to prevent um, extreme complications. If the patient's not in the hospital and they're going home, we need to educate to report if there's any unrelieved or increased pain. So pain they didn't have, now they have um, 
afterwards any numbness tingling any cool sensation or any change in skin color now on to fat embolism syndrome so basically the fat globules are entering the circulation from some sort of fracture usually the long um long bones are going to be the ones that have like this fatty globules um in the bone marrow and anytime that there's injury to them it's going to cause um or it may have one of those little fat cells released and go on into the circulation so like a clot these little fat globules are going to lodge themselves in places that don't belong for instance the lung the brains etc it can also occur not just with long bones but also with um pelvic fractures um Anytime that there is like a tip fib fracture or anything like that that can cause that. Um, it can also occur with um, cosmetic procedures such as liposuction, um, sometimes with um, joint replacements, um, and any of those bone marrow transplants where they're going directly into the marrow and um, possibly releasing these little fat globules. The signs and symptoms usually occur rather quickly after the injury. So the critical time is between those 24 to 48 hours after the injury is when we may see these signs and symptoms. And it progresses relatively fast. One of the first signs that you'll see is hypoxemia. So you're going to start to, pay, you're going to, start to see the patient desaturate. Their stats are going to go down. They're going to become apprehensive. Um, if we... Um, if we don't pick up on it um, quickly, then they're going to start to get tachycardic, cyanotic. Um, they may complain of shortness of breath. Um, but that initial sign is decreased oxygen saturations. Late symptoms include petechia of the axilla, the neck, the interior chest wall, the mouth, and the conjunctiva. And that's a very um, specific sign and symptom of a late um, fat embolism. Hopefully we... Um, are able to identify um, any possibility that a fat embolism can be occurring and we're able to treat the patient um, beforehand. Diagnosis includes chest x-rays, um, oxygen supplementation, uh, I mean, uh, decreased oxygen saturation, um, EKGs may show changes in ST or T waves. Um, and in those labs, we may see an increased um, sedimentation rate, decreased platelets, decreased hematocrit. Treatment includes supportive care, um, managing the symptoms, providing that supportive care, such as oxygen, fluids. If the patient is in severe respiratory distress, then we would have to intubate them in order to assist them in their breathing um, and airway management. Okay, um, prevention, um, proper mobilization of long bone fractures um, or oftentimes just minimal manipulation of a fracture until proper immobilization has been done in order to minimize the risk of releasing those fat globules. Now, for venous thromboembolisms, those are your DVTs. Your greatest risk is in your lower extremities and pelvis. However, a clot can form anywhere in the body. Um, your risk increases when there is any limited mobility or inactivity. If the patient has known risk factors, 
um, for a thromboembolism, then the patients may require some prophylaxis, anticoagulants, um, during that time in mobility. We are going to encourage patients to um, start walking and moving as soon as they are cleared to do so, okay? Because anytime um, that there's immobilization, obviously the risk of forming a DVT increases, okay? The use of tight hose or compression devices um, during surgery, long procedures, or if the patient is going to be in bed um, for long periods of time is very important. We want to make sure that the patient's also doing some range of motion um, activities with the unaffected extremities in order to keep that movement and circulation and um, decrease the clot formation. Okay, making sure that they have enough fluids and that they're not um, dehydrated because obviously whenever there's dehydration, um, the blood um, can um, clot because of that lack of, you know, because the viscosity is just higher. Okay, monitoring signs and symptoms. Um, oftentimes, you're going to see that swollen, red, um, warm um, calf area. There's going to be pain with dorsiflexion. So when the foot is pushed up, then their patient's going to complain of pain to their calf area. Okay, now we're going to go on to amputations. Amputations, most common causes would be a trauma of some sort that they're unable to um, salvage that area. However, um, it can also be secondary um, to other diseases such as peripheral vascular disease or even diabetes um, that can cause um, or lead to an amputation. So the goal of amputation care is to preserve the greatest extremity length and function um, to address and relieve that underlying condition that caused or that led to this amputation, um, that the patient does have proper pain management, um, that we're reaching the maximum rehab potential so they're able to carry on their activities of daily living as well as they are going to possibly be able to um, with this um, disability of um, missing um, a limb or finger or hand, etc. Being able to cope with those body image changes and making satisfactory lifestyle changes. So obviously with amputations, there is a change in what the body looks like, how the body is functioning, and therefore the patient is going to have to relearn how to do certain things in order to adapt um, so we want to make sure that we are providing them with that assistance to get to that point. Okay, as far as um, care afterwards, we want to make sure that the stump um, is elevated in those first 24 to 48 hours in order to prevent contractures of the joints and that we're decreasing edema. Edema is going to um, impair healing. Um, so we definitely want to limit and minimize as much as possible the edema that forms. We're going to be assessing for skin breakdown um, and proper healing. And then afterwards, once that stump is fully formed, um, that there is no skin breakdown due to the um, prosthesis. Okay. We want the patients to um, have proper fitting and care of their prosthesis and go ahead and put them on first thing in the morning before any swelling has set in um, that may um, irritate or um, cause 
um, the prosthesis to not fit properly. Okay, we want them to do range of motion um, exercises to definitely go to their rehab um, and especially if there's like um, lower extremity amputation that they are building up that upper extremity strength in order to compensate um, for the lack of strength that may occur with their um, bottom um, extremities, with their lower extremities. Um, phantom limb sensation is a real problem. It is a complication post-amputation. Basically, the body, um, the brain gets confused and does not realize that there is a missing body part now. Um, the pain is intense. It could be burning, crushing, um, shooting. It is a real pain and it is unrelieved by regular analgesics. Therefore, um, we do need to address it. And there may be a need for other um, adjunct pain management that may need to be used, such as IV calcitonin, um, certain beta blockers, anticonvulsants such as gabapentin or neurontin, um, which are used for like um, neuropathy or um, fibromyalgia for all those excessive um, pain um, that's coming from nerve endings. Now, osteoporosis... Okay, osteoporosis is a chronic progressive metabolic bone disease. Basically, the bones lose um, the bone mass that they have. There's some sort of deterioration of the bone tissue. And that lack of bone um, density um, leads to the bones to be fragile and more um, prone to having some sort of fracture. Um, the ones that have um, the most risk is your spine, um, the wrist, the ribs um, that can have those um, types of fractures. Osteoporosis is most common in women because we um, tend to have a lower calcium intake. Um, they have less bone mass. Um, there is bone reabsorption that starts at an earlier age, usually about the late 20s, and then it becomes more rapid once a patient reaches menopause due to that lack of estrogen. Same thing during pregnancy or during breastfeeding, the body is using up those skeletal reserves. So if they're not replaced, then we're losing that bone mass. Okay, risk factors over 65, female, thin, frail, white, um, are all at increased risk. Your smokers, um, if they're leading a sedentary lifestyle, um, any reason for them to have estrogen deficiency, um, whether it's with menopause or for whatever reason prior to menopause, family history, any um, history of a first degree um, relative who may have had osteoporosis increase the chance. Patients that are um, have a low calcium in their diet. Um, are also high risk. Same thing with vitamin D deficiency. You need that vitamin D to help bind calcium. So if you have a vitamin D deficiency, any calcium that you're intaking is not going to be able to bind as it should. Having more than two alcoholic beverages a day um, in men, if they have a low testosterone, it puts them at higher risk for osteoporosis. Same thing patients that are long-term use of certain medications such as corticosteroids, thyroid replacements, um, certain anti-seizure drugs, long-acting sedatives, and heparin. We diagnose osteoporosis based on the score 
of the gold standard, which is a dual energy x-ray absorptionometry or DEXA. Um, and that what it does, it measures density in your spine, your hips, your forearm. Um, it's used for diagnosis. It's also used to evaluate any changes that are occurring over time. And if the patient is on um, some sort of treatment, it's going to help the uh, provider evaluate if it is being effective or not. To be considered osteoporosis, there's a T-score, and basically what it does, it's measuring that peak bone mineral density as compared to a healthy 30-year-old um, um, patient. Anything over negative 2.5 is considered osteoporosis, negative 1 to negative 2.5 is considered osteopenia. So there's some bone loss present, but it has not reached um the osteoporosis level. Okay, patients with osteoporosis will have height loss. You may see them with dorsal kyphosis or cervical lordosis, and again, they're more prone to having these stress um, fractures, um, such as compression fractures of the spine, um, or um, fractures of their um, hips or wrists. As far as treatment. We want to increase calcium in diet, whether it's um, if unable to do it in diet, then there may need some um, supplementation to be given. Um, patients need vitamin D supplementation or getting natural sunlight five to 30 minutes a day, um, about two times a week. They need weight bearing exercises in order to help bind and build that bone mass. Um, estrogen replacement, um, again, um, because estrogen, um, when the numbers decrease, then we're looking at higher risk of osteoporosis. Estrogen replacement is an option, however, it has a lot of side effects. So a lot of patients will not be candidates for estrogen replacement. So it's not um, something that you're going to see often as a treatment. For instance, patients that have underlying heart conditions, previous history of DVTs, migraines with auras, anything like that, um, they are not candidates for estrogen replacement. If it is due to um, an underlying condition, then obviously addressing those underlying conditions will also help um, address the issue of osteoporosis. Okay. Um, your most common medication treatment for osteoporosis is going to be the use of bisphosphonates. All those that end in NATE, the alendronate, resendronate, um, cylindronic acid, ebandronate. Um, there's also options such as monoclonal antibodies, such as um, those that end in MAB, um, like the Prolia or Evanity, and those are usually infusions. Um, I believe Prolia is every six months that they get this infusion. Um, but again, it just depends on um, the level of osteoporosis um, would be what kind of treatment we, um, we will see the patients be on. Now, if it's an issue due to their parathyroids, which are what help regulate calcium in the system, then another option would be teriparatide, which is Forteo, which is an infusion. Okay. Now, for bisphosphonates, what they basically do is they prevent those osteoclasts from remodeling um, the bones. So it slows bone remodeling. 
um, which in patients with osteoporosis, there's an offset of it. So the body thinks it needs to continuously remodel and it eats up that bone. So what it uh, bisphosphonates do, it slows it down. Treatment is usually about five years. The nursing education is we need to make sure that any patient that is on some sort of bisphosphonate therapy, they have to be able to sit up for 30 minutes after ingestion of the medication. So if they're unable to sit up for those 30 minutes, then bisphosphonates would not be an option for them. They're going to take it with eight ounces of water on an empty stomach um, right before eating breakfast. They need to stay sitting up for about 30 minutes and then they can go about their day. Bisphosphonates increase the risk of esophagitis or esophageal ulcers. So if patients start to complain of dysphagia, of um, hematoemesis, um, or chest pain, or that burning pain, um, they need to report that to their providers because it could be a side effect of the bisphosphonates. Okay, the last slide is walking with a cane. Um, the crutches, they should be um, placed um, no wider than shoulder um, distance. As far as canes, you go if you're going up the stairs, it's up with a good and down with a bad. Um, when you're moving patients from wheelchair to bed or from the bed to the wheelchair, we need to make sure that they're always in a locked position to prevent your patient from falling. Okay, so that is ortho. Um, in the next podcast, we will cover um, pressure ulcers.